Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16? If you know this, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Now, let me just say this before we get going. As uh, most of you already know, my style of teaching uh, is to go through the Bible verse by verse because in that way I can do what Paul the Apostle said he did in Acts 20, 27, and that is give to you the whole counsel of God. The whole, if I take it verse by verse, you have to hit it all. You have to touch on everything, right? Not just the topics that a pastor may like. Verse by verse, you get the whole counsel of God. It's called expositional teaching, which is different from topical teaching. Now listen, some of the greatest teachers in the world are topical teachers. I have nothing against topical teaching as long as a teacher doesn't, you know, yank a verse or verses out of its context and treat it like a standalone principle or passage. When teachers engage in what I'll call passage harvesting, uh, when they remove a verse or a passage from its context to treat it if it's the, as if it's the only verse or only passage on the page, nothing comes before it or after it, well, that leads to eisegesis instead of good, solid exegesis. Eisegesis is reading into the passage what you want it to say. Exegesis is drawing out from the passage what God has put there, what God has said, okay? Now, this morning... I like to present a topical teaching, but a topical teaching that comes from our expositional study in the Gospel of John. Let's read the passage uh, I'd like to teach topically. It starts in verses, it's John 16, verses 23 and 4, where Jesus said, In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I'm calling this topical message the joy of answered prayer. Now, as we said, the context is very important, so I'd like to use that as our first main point, the context. Verse 23, in that day, in that day you will ask me nothing. In what day? Well, in the day Jesus returns to his father after his, after his death and resurrection. The context for that statement started in the upper room uh, while Jesus and his disciples were observing the Passover together. Turn back to John 13. I'm going to just run through these quickly just to, we can piece it all together and understand exactly what the Lord's talking about, right? So John 13, verse 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, the Pharisees and scribes, where I am going, you cannot come, so now I say to you. Chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house in heaven are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. John 14, verse 16. And once I return to my Father in heaven is the context, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. We've talked quite a bit about the Holy Spirit of the last few weeks. John 16, verse 16. 
a little while, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me because, listen, I go to the Father. And then verse 23 of John 16, and in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And so the context of verses 23 and 4 of John 16 is that Jesus is going to be returning to his Father in heaven soon, which means he will soon be turning over the work of the kingdom to them. Now look, for the last three and a half years, Jesus has been with them physically, bodily. And whatever questions they had in understanding the work of building God's kingdom on the earth, they just simply went to Jesus. They asked Jesus, and of course, he answered their questions. Also, if they, they had any needs for the work of the kingdom, remember now, Jesus sent them out a couple of times uh, to preach the gospel. Before he went to the cross, he was preparing them, right? And so... If they had any needs while they were going out, um, preaching the gospel, they would uh, just simply bring those needs to Jesus, and he would bring them to those requests to the Father in prayer. And the Father would then provide them with anything they needed uh, in spreading the gospel and building the kingdom. But here Jesus is telling them soon he's no longer going to be with them physically. He's leaving them. And uh, which means that they would have to, they, that, which means he would no longer be there uh, to, for, him to, for them to ask him questions, right? He's going. And any questions that they had about building a kingdom or requests they needed and so on, uh, what were they going to do now? He's going to be gone. I mean, did that mean they would ha no longer have anyone to whom they could go uh, with their questions and problems? And of course, the answer is no, because Jesus is telling them right here that in that day that I'm no longer with you physically, bodily, um, that he said you can take your requests, your kingdom questions and request directly to the Father. You don't have to go through me anymore. Up until now, you've been talking to me. You've asked me the questions. You've, uh, you've brought your requests to me, and I've brought them to the Father for you. But now I'm going to be going back to the Father, and so you are going to need now to go directly to the Father in prayer. Directly to the Father in prayer, who will now answer your questions and provide your needs. But here's the, here's the condition, right? That was the context. Here's the condition, John 16, verse 23. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father, listen, in my name he will give you turn back to john 14 where this thought originated that night john 14 verse 13 and whatever you ask in my name that i will do that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask anything in my name i will do it now this statement is an incredible statement for Jesus to have promised his disciples. Think about it. Whatever you ask in my name, you'll get it. You'll receive it. How are we as Jesus' disciples really supposed to understand that? That's a pretty big promise, right? Well, there are many Christians who have been taught that this promise is a blank check. 
just waiting for us to, you know, fill in the amount and cash it by faith. So no matter what it is, a new car, new house, health, wealth, whatever you desire, all you have to do is ask for it in Jesus' name, and he will give it to you as an ironclad promise. That's what a lot of churches teach. And if you don't get what you're asking, okay, all right, uh, if you don't, you know, get healed or prospered in some way, it's because of your lack of faith, because Jesus gave the promise right here. So, you know what, if you're not receiving it, it's your fault. Now, I don't believe that's what Jesus was talking about, all right? Um, so, we need to look at this more closely. To properly understand what Jesus is really saying here, uh, yeah, all the way back in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, all, and also now in John 16, verse 23, we need to understand two things. Whatever you ask in my name, you'll receive it. We need to understand two things. First of all, to whom was Jesus speaking when he gave this promise? I mean, context is everything, right? Remember, it's context that gives us the proper foundation for interpreting anything in God's word, especially when it comes to a promise he has given and so once again, to whom was Jesus speaking when he gave this promise that whatever you ask in my name, uh, I will do or you'll receive? Was he giving this promise to the multitudes? You know, Jesus often taught the multitudes, right? He went from village to village and he taught the word and, and he gave them promises about eternal life if they would come to him and so on. Was Jesus here speaking to the multitudes in general? No. He was talking to his disciples in particular the night before his crucifixion. And earlier in his ministry, Jesus had laid out the cost of being one of his disciples. You remember this from Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone desires to come after me, in other words, if anyone desires to be one of my disciples, right? Let him, her, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's break that down quickly, all right? So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus said, here's the uh, criteria. Here's what you need to understand. First of all, you have to deny yourself. The idea is to deny yourself your goals and your desires, to live for God's glory and for the building of his kingdom. Being a disciple of Christ is a life of self-denial and service to Jesus as our king. And this means we must abandon all selfish desires, all goals that seek to glorify ourselves uh, and any you know kind of life that seeks to become a Christian because we want to use God to get what our flesh desires. A lot of people who are following Jesus purely because they have been promised by their pastor or church if they follow Jesus and learn this little formula how to ask for things in his name uh, your business is going to prosper you'll be healthy all the time you'll you know of all these things going on blessings that God will give you. There's a lot of folks that follow Jesus purely for what God is going to do for them. John the Apostle in his first epistle, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, says that, look, I'll paraphrase. This world belongs to the devil. He's the God of this world. And he has designed this world to appeal, everything in it to appeal to the lust of the eyes, 
the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These things, John said, are not of God the Father, are of the world, and the world is rapidly passing away, but he or her who does the will of God abides forever. The idea is that the devil is trying to get people's eyes off of God to get them to love the world more than they love God because wherever their heart is, their, their treasure is there, their heart is going to be also, right? It all boils down to where is our treasure? What do we value most in life? The things of this world or the things of God? Because whatever we truly value and love, that's what's going to have our heart. So John understood Look, the devil has orchestrated this world to appeal to the things that stimulate your flesh. Understand, these things are temporal. Building a kingdom on the earth is a kingdom that's not going to last. That's why we need to send up our, re our rewards to heaven and build God's kingdom on the earth because our rewards will be waiting for us in heaven. But it's very important that we understand that, you know, as Christians, the Christian life is not about what God can do for me. It's all about how I can die to self to live for him. Didn't Jesus say this in so many places, one of which is John 8, 29? I do always those things. And might I paraphrase, I do always and only those things that please my Father in heaven. In other words, guys, a true disciple isn't going to be seeking after personal riches or glory. His or her prayers will be only for the glory of God and not the glory of self. Number two, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. The cross, of course, back then was a symbol of literal death. Today, though, it is a symbol of an allegorical kind of dying to self. That, excuse me allegorical death which is dying to self to take up one's cross not just simply means to die to self it also means to be willing to pay any any price for christ's sake it is the willingness to endure shame embarrassment reproach rejection persecution and even martyrdom for the cause of christ the cross represents the suffering that will be ours because we belong to him. Didn't he say that in John 15? If the world hates me, it's going to hate you also. That's the bottom line. That's what's involved in picking up our cross. We have to die to self. If you love the praise of men, you're not going to die to self. And that's something that has, well, we shouldn't be surprised that this mindset has come into the church it was very clear in the first century church they understood you don't love the world you love the lord it's not about laying up treasures on the earth it's about laying up treasures in heaven right but the devil is clever and he's patient and he has infiltrated the church which is the last days paul said in the last days people in churches would not want to hear sound wholesome healthy teaching from god's word but would want to gather to themselves teachers would itch, your, would itch their ears, you know, and tell, by telling them what they want to hear. So Satan, a master of deception, infiltrated the church years ago, and he switched it all. He, he switched all the price tags in the window of heaven. He made sin virtuous. He told Christians that, look, being greedy 
and wanting stuff is not carnal. That's spiritual. You're children of God. All, and his kids, God wants his kids to have the best. Don't you want your kids to have the best? I mean, you know, if you're wealthy, you want your kids driving a Volkswagen or a Mercedes. Come on. God wants the best for his kids. One well-known Word of Faith teacher said, it's not humble to drive a Chevy when you could be driving a BMW or whatever he said. So, so these people have twisted everything and turned greed and selfishness into a virtue, into spirituality. This is what we're up against. we got to keep our heads on straight. A lot of this junk has infiltrated the church. God forbid it should infiltrate into our thinking. And how do you keep your mind on, your head on straight? Stay in the word. And no longer be, you know, influenced, brainwashed by the things of the devil. His philosophies and things. But stay in the word and get yourself, your thinking straightened out, right? But the cross represents the suffering that will be ours because of our relationship with Christ. One pastor put it well. He said, and I quote, Christ does not call disciples to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous, but to make them holy and productive. Willingness to take up his cross is a mark of a true disciple. As the hymnist wrote, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. The author says, those who make Initial confessions of their desire to follow Christ but refuse to accept the hardship or persecution are characterized by Jesus as the false seed that fell on the shallow soil. Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. And how these, this kind of person, uh, the, the, you know, the, actually the seed is the word, but falls on a shallow heart. And uh, this person... Uh, comes to church and receives the word with a lot of happiness and joy, but it never comes to fruition because as soon as somebody persecutes them for their faith in Christ, they fall away. They're not, they're not interested in suffering for Christ, only being blessed by Christ. And so the author says, many people want a no-cost discipleship, but Christ offers no such option, end quote. Well, then finally, looking at Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Very important. True discipleship is following in the steps of Jesus, living the life that he lived. The one who said, I haven't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And I haven't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Guys, this is one of the most basic and I think the, one of the easiest litmus, litmus tests we can apply into our lives to see uh, where I am with the Lord. Am I really following after Jesus? The true disciple follows after Christ. John said it in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in him, in Christ, in other words, I'm in Christ, I'm saved, also ought to walk just as he walked. I mean, you can say whatever you want. Talk is cheap. What is your life saying? Paul the Apostle said, Many profess to know Christ, but in works or by the way they live, they deny him. No, none of us are perfect. I'm not going for that. I'm just saying there's a big difference between a person who loves Jesus so much they struggle 
uh, week to week because they love them. They want to, they're in the word, they're in prayer, they're in fellowship. They want to do the right thing. They love the Lord. It's, that's a d different kind of person than somebody comes to church on a Sunday, nods as they listen to the word being taught, walks out that door, and doesn't do a darn thing about it all week long. Well, I did my duty. Or, because I went to church, got to put another mark on my little account, God, you owe me. We'll talk about that in a second. Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice. I know them, salvation, and they what? Follow me. You've heard me tell the story of the uh, guy that was walking down the street one day, and there was a little puppy walking in front of him. And somebody across the street looked at this and said, oh, he's walking his dog, right? No leash, but, you know, some people do that. And they're watching, you know, assuming that the dog belonged to this guy. This was his master. All of a sudden, the guy turns the corner and starts walking down a different street. The dog keeps walking straight. Now the person realized, well, no. For a while, they were going in the same direction. But it's obvious now that the dog was not the uh, this, this man's pet. This man was not his master. So a lot of folks that happen to be going in the same direction Jesus is going. And that's all well and fine as long as Jesus is going where they want to go. But often Jesus says, no, I want you to go this way. Path of self-denial. Well, I don't go there. See, I was promised riches, Lord. I was promised success and health. Well, that's not where I'm going. I mean, Jesus' whole life was wrapped up in glorifying his Father through obedience and manifestation, manifesting his character, the Father's character, the people of this world. And guys, a true disciple of Jesus will have the same passionate desire to glorify God through obedience and to manifest his character to the people of this earth. And primarily, I'm thinking of God's love. Didn't Jesus say this the night before? Just hours now from the cross, John 17. As he offered up his high priestly prayer to the Father before the cross, he said, Father, I have glorified your name to the people of this world. I have totally and completely and faithfully represented you to this world. So much so that Philip said earlier in the evening, show us the Father will be satisfied. Philip, have I not been with you so long? You would ask me such a question. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have perfectly represented him. Now, I know, I know I'm not going to perfectly represent the Father like Jesus did. But that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal. To manifest to the people of this world God's character, primarily his love, sacrificial love. Believe me, selfishness and carnality are not qualities of those who are following Jesus qualities of those who are following their flesh, their fleshly desires. A life of selfish, carnal desires, which then gets translated into prayer in the name of faith, well, is not the kind of person Jesus made this promise to, whatever you ask in my name, you'll receive. It was totally not, because that's not a disciple. It might be a churchgoer, but it's not a true disciple. So whom, to whom was Jesus speaking when he gave this promise? To his disciples. And we all know now what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Number two, what does it mean to ask for things in Jesus' name? I love this one, okay? Uh, turn back to John 14 for a second. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. 
And so once again, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 16, verse 23. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Guys, asking in Jesus' name is not some kind of magical phrase. It's amazing. The stuff that, well, I can't say they're all Christians. They are churchgoers. They, they have sat under teaching that has taught this, and they've embraced it. I don't know their hearts. But it's amazing the concept that some people have come away with when they read a scripture like this. They believe that, and I'm just using my own word, they believe that's kind of like a magic phrase. And no matter what you ask before attacking that little magic phrase in Jesus' name onto the end of your prayers, that means you're going to get what you asked for. Didn't Jesus say it? If you don't get it, it's your fault. I mean, some of these preachers on TV are so haughty. You know, if they don't walk on water, which they don't, it's the water's fault. Because they're perfect. Okay? I mean, no matter how selfish, how, how outlandish a request is, it now must be honored by God because we stuck in Jesus' name after the prayer. And we know that he promised us we will get whatever we ask for as long as we put Jesus' name at the end of that prayer. That's what they believe. That's what they teach. That's ridiculous. In the Jewish mind, to ask for something in someone's, someone else's name meant to ask for something as their representative. Something they would have asked for if they had been there themselves in person. It would be something that was in harmony with their character and personality. For in the Jewish mind, the concept of name, name, speaks of all that a person is, their nature. You remember when God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let his people go. And Moses said, well, Lord, I don't even know your name. Who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me? Well, that was earlier, okay, chapter 3 of Exodus. But then later on, God appears to Moses and wants to know, wants to really know his name, Exodus 34. And so he says to God, tell me your name. And God responded by telling Moses, my name is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, etc. He said, this is my name. What was he doing? He was saying, my name is my nature. My name is my nature. To ask for something in Jesus' name means I'm asking for things that are consistent with his nature, his character. It means I'm standing in his place and asking for what he would have asked for had he been here physically on the earth, especially when it comes to the work of God's kingdom. We might paraphrase a prayer like this. Father, I'm asking this on behalf of Jesus because I know he would have wanted this. I know it. Because it's consistent with his character and what, he, and what he was most passionate about during his earthly ministry. And what was he most passionate about? Two things. The glory of his Father and the saving of souls. He said numerous places in John's Gospel. I do always those things that glorify my Father. Right? 
His whole life was wrapped up in glory, which means to properly represent. His whole life was wrapped up in properly representing his father on the earth, glorifying him. And then Luke 19, verse 10, tells us that he, I, I, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That was his other passion, to see sinners saved, right? Let me just say this. It, it, talking about prayer, answered prayer. God only answers prayers that are consistent with his character. Remember what John says? This is the grid that our prayers must pass through if they're going to be answered. They must only be in agreement, in accordance with God's will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have the things we have asked of him, right? Everything has to go through the grid of God's sovereign will. In other words, God will never answer a prayer that says, Lord, I want to commit adultery. Can you help me? Lord, I want to rip off my boss. I deserve more money. Can you make it happen? Obviously, right? If Jesus wouldn't have asked for it, we better not either, is my point. And one thing we know for sure, Jesus would never have asked his father for anything that would have glorified Jesus. He would have never have asked his father for material wealth for himself. Look, we are Jesus' representatives doing his business and building his kingdom here on the earth. I mean, didn't he give us that responsibility when he ascended back to his Father in heaven and he gave the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I started the work of the kingdom. I'm turning it over to you. And in doing that, what he is saying here is, and whatever we need to accomplish, the work that he gave us to do. We are to ask the Father in his name, and he, Jesus, promised he would make sure we got whatever we needed to do the work he had commissioned us to do. That's why I never ask you for money. You've been coming here for a while, you know that. Because I believe where God guides, he provides. And if I'm in the middle of God's will doing what he's called me to do, I never have to worry about finances. And whatever you give is between you and God. I don't even look at what you give. It's between you and God. The way I look at it, if you want to give, God will bless you. If you don't want to give, that's up to you. But I certainly don't need it for the work of the kingdom. Because it's God's work. So therefore, if I beg people for money, I make God a pauper. I dishonor God. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago how I felt about taking money from the government. They had a program uh, some months back where they were given churches that applied for it, federal funds for their churches because, you know, offerings were down and because and, and of the COVID lockdown back a few months ago. And so she asked me, well, what, what, is your, what is your feelings about taking money for the government for the church? I said, I have a very strong conviction against that. I would never take any money from the government to do the work of God. That's my conviction. I know there are pastors that took the money, and they have their own reasons, and I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying my conviction is I will never ask man, and I certainly won't ask the government for money to do the work of God. It's his work. And if he can't support his work, let's close the book and go home. Because there's nothing left. If God's not able to do his work, 
Then what am I worrying about it for? I'm in the wrong line of business then. I get going and I forgot where I was. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Um, but guys, th that in essence is the, interp the interpretation of the statement of asking the Father for anything in Jesus' name. The context is for the work of building God's kingdom on the earth. So I'll paraphrase what Jesus was saying. Whatever you need, to do the work I'm commissioning you to do, to go into all the world, preach the gospel, build God's kingdom. Whatever you need for the work of the kingdom, you ask the Father in my name, because you're now standing in for me. You're my representative now when I go back to the Father. And I will make sure, as I talk to the Father, I, I will make sure that you get everything you need to do the work I have called you to do. I started it. I'm asking you to finish it. And I will give you everything you need. The Father will give it to you to finish the work we have called you to do. It was not a promise that we could be carnal and selfish and ask God for fancy cars and palatial mansions and all kinds of other material goodies. And he would have to fulfill our request because after all, we've prayed in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer, right? Remember, the prayer, that prayer in Jesus' name is always, always for the glory of God. And we know that Jesus always prayed for things that glorified his Father. We've read it several times already. I don't have to turn back to it. John 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That was Jesus' passion, to always glorify his Father in heaven. And that must be our passion, to properly represent God to the people of this world. And you say, that's hard. No, that's impossible, folks. It's not hard. It's impossible. You understand the Christian life is a supernatural life. That's why he spent so much time talking about the Spirit before he got to this point, right? We talked a lot about the Holy Spirit before we came to John 16, or where we are right now. Jesus was commissioning his men to do something impossible by human standards. Anyone who tries to do the work of God or live the life God is calling them to live in the power of their own in the energy of their own strength that is a defeating proposition because the christian life isn't about trying harder it's abiding it's about abiding longer because that that's where the power comes in the more we abide in christ stay in close fellowship with jesus in the word in prayer the more the holy spirit can overflow our lives and flow through us to a hurting world around us this whole section you talk about context this whole section deals with the supernatural life that only a child of God can live, and yet not all live it. Why? Because some are in the wilderness still. They have never allowed God to bring them into the life of the Spirit. They're saved, but murmuring, complaining, how come God doesn't give me this? Why does he get to do that and I can't? It's always about complaining and murmuring like they did in the wilderness, right? What was the promised land indicative of? Life in the Spirit. Victory, blessing, fruitfulness, everything that we have as Christians, metaphorically, compared to the promised land, they had literally. Now listen, you're thinking to yourself, well, wait, now wait a minute. So you're saying, I can't pray for myself? 
for anything? My needs? No, I'm not saying that. Not at all. Yeah, but you just said it's all, prayers are all about building the kingdom, all about God's glory. Look, you're a child of God. If you need food, if you need shelter, if you need something else that you need to live, you're God's kids. What kind of father would he be if he didn't supply the needs of his children, right? When God supplies our needs, he gets glory. Like any parent who's a good parent and sacrifices for the sake of their kids to make sure they have food in their stomachs, even if the father has to go hungry, our heavenly father, that doesn't quite fit him. But, but the point is, when you ask God for things that you need to live, that's not being carnal and selfish. Jesus encouraged us to do that in Matthew 6 with a caveat. He said, look, your heavenly father knows what you have need of before you even ask. He made you. He knows that you have physical needs to live and get by. But he said, just don't worry about your physical needs, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, where you're going to live. All these things your heavenly father knows you have need of and fully intends to supply everything you need in the physical that you might live. But don't live at the level of the physical. Live at the level of the spirit. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things God will provide for you. We are not of the world. The world worries about what they're going to eat, where they're going to live, uh, what they're going to drink, what, you know, where, what they're going to wear. They're consumed with their physical needs because they don't have a heavenly father that they can go to like we do. It dishonors our father when we worry about our basic necessities. Like, oh, is God going to come through? What kind of an image of God is that? When my kids were little, not one time did I walk in the house and see them in the corner wringing their little hands. Are we going to have food tonight? You know, are we going to have a place to, to sleep tonight? They just knew their father was going to provide those things. The same is true with us. It dishonors our father to worry about our basic necessities. He's going to take care of that, but don't live at the level of the unbelievers. Live at the level of the spirit and seek first his kingdom and do the work of building his kingdom and everything else in the physical, he'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. So that's what this passage is really talking about. That's the context, the work of the kingdom, the condition. I can ask for anything, the Father, for anything to do the work of the kingdom, as long as it's something Jesus would have asked for, which means I have to ask in his name. I'm representing him, okay? All those things I ask for in his name, the ideas, they're consistent with who he is. Things that he would have asked for if he were here on the earth still physically, bodily. It's easy to understand then that anything we ask for, especially when it comes to the work of the kingdom, God will give us. Because that's the context. One author said it well. He said, and I quote, God wants, God wants to use us as instruments on the earth to show his power through by being a witness to bring others to Christ. This is all tied in with prayer, but Christ-centered prayer. Prayer for the glory of God from the heart of a disciple whose heart breaks to see a world lost and on its way to hell. A world taking glory away from God by the way it's living and so on. That kind of prayer will be answered. A prayer that has a heart for the lost and a heart to see God glorified in this fallen world. 
That kind, uh, that kind of prayer will be answered. The kind that brings glory to God, not to self with carnal, selfish prayers. So many people have gotten caught up with this teaching about it's all about me. You know, God lives to satisfy my desires. God help us to understand what it really, what it truly means to follow Jesus who was and is so selfless and others-centered, end quote. All right, let's finish. We've seen the context, the condition, now the consequences, all right? The consequence. Again, John 16, verse 23. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that, listen, your joy may be full. Guys, there is nothing that brings a true spirit-filled Christian more joy than answered prayer. Not a carnal Christian, okay, a new car. That's where, you know, that brings them a lot of happiness. You know, a new bracelet or bobble, you know. I'm talking about a mature, spirit-filled Christian. There's no, nothing brings us greater joy than answered prayer. Part of the joy comes from the realization that God is listening to our prayers, right? Sometimes we don't think God's there anymore. We're praying and praying and praying like the old saying goes, I felt like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. So a lot, a lot of times we're praying and we don't sense God's presence. We don't feel he's there. And we're crying out to him with some need or request or something. And all of a sudden, it comes through. And you know, and you know in your spirit, it was an answer to prayer. How does that make you feel? God's there. He's listening. He hasn't abandoned me. He's with me. You know? Part of the thing with the great joy and answer to prayer is that I know he cares about me. He cares about me and you. Understand that the greatest reason Christians don't get what they need from God in a given situation is because, here it is, very deep, they simply don't bother to pray at all for that thing. Didn't James say that? Why don't you have things from God? Because you don't ask. Why don't people ask? Well, some people are well, not Christians. Okay, I'm going to set them aside. What about professing Christians? Why do sometimes, and I've met many, who don't ask God in the face of a big trial or something they need from God, well, why don't they ask God? Because at this point in their walk, they're so carnal still, they're trusting more in their own strength and more in their own ability to provide than trusting in God. Somehow it's a, it's a, it's a, a mark against their independence and their strength to say, God, I can't do it. I need you to do it. No, 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 they're going to show God. Like the little, what, one-and-a-half-year-old that kept trying to tie his shoes and tie his shoes and couldn't get it and was so frustrated. True story. So frustrated, he tried to kick the shoes across the room. Daddy comes over and tries to fix, no, 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 no. He starts kicking, kicking, kicking. Okay, go ahead. Couldn't do it, couldn't do it. Tried to kick the shoes across the room. That's, we're like that. God is saying, why, do you, why are you trying to do things that only I can do? Why are you trying to live the life only I can live through you? Why are you trying to get free of alcohol and drugs and pornography in your own strength? These are things you can't muster the strength and the fortitude and lift yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality. It doesn't work. It's beyond your strength. 
And the sooner you recognize that and you surrender to me, the quicker you're going to have victory. Paul said it. When I am weak, what? Then I'm strong, right? Then I'm strong. So there's a lot of people that, first of all, they, they think they can handle anything. Others don't think that prayer does anything. They're so carnal. They don't really think prayer is going to accomplish anything. Why bother? But then most of us as Christians, we do believe prayer is powerful. We've seen prayer in work in the lives of others. We've seen maybe a miracle. Maybe somebody's gotten healed from cancer or a marriage that was beyond repair. God suddenly puts back together. Uh, there's all kinds of things that we have seen over the years that God has done uh, through prayer. So why don't we know prayer is powerful? So then why don't we pray more? Why are we often so lacking in our prayer life? Well, I think primarily, in what I've seen over the years, primarily, a lot of Christians let Satan get in their ear. And they ba he basically condemns them. And they buy into it. Why do you think God won't answer your prayer? Look at your walk. Look at like you're still in bondage to this or that. Why, why do you think God would answer your prayer? Don't even bother. You know, he, he doesn't even want to hear from you. And we buy into that. And we begin to think, yeah, that's right. Who am I? I don't deserve God to answer any of my prayers. Well, now you have a good starting point. None of us deserve anything from God. Everything God gives us is a gift of grace, which means we get what we don't deserve. If you think you do deserve something from God, well, after all, I went to church faithfully all month, read my Bible every day. Now, God, doesn't that mean you owe me something? No. God is saying, no, no, I don't owe you anything. Some people have this entitlement mentality. that They do all these things for God, and now God owes them. They're entitled to answered prayers. Folks that have come to God with that kind of attitude, God doesn't answer their prayers. Then they wonder why prayer doesn't work. It's not that prayer doesn't work. Your heart is wrong. Your heart is wrong. Again, everything we receive from God is a gift of His grace. If you think you deserve it, or even worse, if you are entitled to it, that God owes you, he won't answer your prayer. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking, yes, I understand all that, and I've really tried to pray consistently. I really have, but I keep failing miserably, so I've just given up. Okay, that's honest. Guys, let me just say this to you as we wind this down. A strong prayer life is just as much a gift of God's grace as any other work or discipline in the Christian life. Again, giving up alcohol, giving up cigarettes, drugs, pornography. All those things that really were too strong in your life for you to get, get free of, but God stepped in and delivered you. Uh, we think of you know the drugs, the alcohol, and whatever else. We understand that deliverance. But how about God delivering you from a lousy prayer life? And I'm talking about me too. What about God coming in and not just the the absence of the negatives, but the presence of the positives. What do I mean? Yeah, the drugs, the alcohol, that goes. But now I need to be consistent in the word and in prayer. I want to be bold as a witness for Christ. The presence of the positives, that's just as much grace required for those things to make an appearance in our lives as the other things that disappear. 
We don't see we don't see it that way. And the devil keeps a lot of Christians in the dark about these things. And churches follow suit because the pastor's so busy about preaching his, his uh, 10 favorite hobby horse uh, topical series, all about how you can be wealthy and successful and, and how you must give a lot of money to the church because then God will give back to you, that kind of teaching. And one of the churches full of shallow, defeated Christians. A strong prayer life is just as much a gift of God's grace as any other work or discipline in the Christian life, even as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. To everyone here who wants to pray with a renewed fervor and discipline and consistency, but finds no strength to do it, let me read you a quote from Andrew Murray, one of my favorite devotional authors, that comes from his book, Living a Prayerful Life. Listen to what Murray said. He said, Many a person has turned to his place of prayer under bitter self-accusation that he has prayed so little, and he has resolved for the future to live in a different manner. I'm going to start praying more. It's a good New Year's resolution. Try that. See how long it lasts. Let me know. Okay? I've never had a New Year's resolution yet that worked for more than a few minutes. Um, but, you know, but, but Andrew Murray says, you know, we come to God, we're defeated over our lousy prayer life, and we go, oh, God, I'm going to do better. Okay? Yet no blessing has come. There has not been the strength to continue faithful. And the call to repentance has had no power because his eyes were not fixed on the Lord Jesus. If he, if he had only understood, he would have said, Lord, you see how cold and dark my heart is. I know that I must pray, but I feel I cannot do so. I lack the urgency and desire to pray. Murray says he did not know that at that same moment, the Lord Jesus, in his tender love, was looking down upon him and saying, You cannot pray. You feel that all is cold and dark. Why not give yourself to me over into my hands? Only believe that I am ready to help you in prayer. I long to pour my love into your heart so that you, in the consciousness of weakness, may confidently reply, rely on me to bestow the grace of prayer. Just as I will cleanse you from all other sins, so also I will deliver you from the sin of prayerlessness only. Do not seek the victory in your own strength. Bow before me as one who expects everything from his Savior. Let your soul keep silence before me, however lame you feel your state is. Be assured of this, I will teach you to pray. I will give you the grace to pray. And yet James went on to say that even when Christians do pray, sometimes they still don't get what they ask of God. Why? Because they ask amiss. They ask with selfish motives. And you could fill in the blank, right? The New Living Translation says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Self-examination in prayer is very important. And so, guys, when it comes to answered prayer, sometimes God says no. Now, we're talking about the joy of answered prayer. Can I tell you this? Sometimes there is joy in unanswered prayer. And there's a lot of things I prayed for when I was a new Christian. I'm glad God never gave me. That would have been a disaster. 
No, I'm not going to tell you what they were. You can figure that out, okay? You know? God, I don't want a big church. I want thousands of people coming. Oh, my goodness. What a, that would have destroyed me and everyone else in the church. We need to grow, right? It's like a five-year-old saying, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? I've seen you drive. I'd like to try that. You know? I certainly wasn't ready for a big church. I don't think I'm still ready. That's okay. If I can have strong disciples, I'll take those over a big church any day. And that's what we teach the word verse by verse. So when it comes to answered prayer, sometimes God says no. And I'm happy that he has said no Okay, uh, at times. Sometimes we don't have our prayers answered because, listen, we give up praying before God's ready to give the answer. Ecclesiastes 3, 1, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, right? You can read Daniel 10. Daniel had, had to have some input from God. He needed a revelation. He starts fasting and praying. Three full weeks go by until finally an angel comes and says something remarkable. Says, Daniel, from the very first, I want you to understand something. From the very first day you set yourself to fasting and praying, God dispatched me with your answer, but I was withheld for 21 days by the demon power, the king, over the kingdom of Persia. I wonder if Daniel would have stopped praying on day 20. Oh, that's it. God doesn't listen to prayer. If he would have ever gotten his answer. Look, when it comes to praying for the soul of a loved one, a spouse, a child, a parent, those are demonic battles that are not easily won. You must remain constant. I mean, guys, it's a battle. You're pulling them in one direction through prayer to get saved, and the devil's trying to push them right back into the world. And sometimes we just flat give up before God really has a, had a chance to really bring his, the answer to us. And that's why you remember what Jesus taught his disciples about prayer. He said, look, he said, um, Matthew 7, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you, right? In the Greek, he's, this is what it actually comes across. Ask, please ask and keep on asking. Seek, please seek and keep on uh, pursuing. Knock, please knock, and the door will be opened, right? The idea is that we must be consistent. We must be consistent. Persistence, I should say persistence in prayer is very important if we want our prayers to be answered by God, especially when it comes to, as I said, the souls of the people we love. Remember Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 1, he spoke a parable to them that men, women also always ought to pray and not lose heart. And so when it comes to answer prayer, guys, sometimes God says no. Rejoice. His no is the best. If that's what he wills, it's the best. Sometimes he says not yet. So be patient, be consistent, be persistent. And sometimes he says yes. And boy, does that bring great joy. When you've been praying for, we'll say, somebody for years to get saved. I was told in first service, I was listening to a uh, speaker on a cassette tape. At least it wasn't an A-track. A cassette tape years ago. This guy was actually a, a, a L.A. Uh, cop. He was a, he was a captain. 
solid Christian guy. And could he teach? In fact, he was such a good teacher that he was always in that, invited to conferences and things. And as he was giving this, te this teaching at some conference, you could tell it was a big broom. He gave an altar call. As people are walking forward, he starts breaking up. He said, here's a partner of mine I've been praying for for 25 years coming forward. Wow. What joy in answered prayer. So don't give up. I know things are rough. I know that the devil's trying to tell us that prayer doesn't work. God doesn't want to hear from you. This person's too far gone. Leave it alone. Hang in there especially in these days. These are bad days. Evil men are growing worse and worse, as the Bible predicted. Love of many are growing cold. We need to have our love for the Lord hot, passionate, that people would see our, our commitment to him and be drawn to Jesus because of our light and hopefully get saved. So we will continue on, God willing, next week. Uh, we're not done with... Jesus farewell addressed to his disciples before his cross. We'll see that as we continue next time. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, you'll continue to bless these studies in your word. This is the only way we're going to grow. This is the only way we're going to have a solid foundation upon which you can build we just thank you, Lord. We ask that you would continue to bless now for your glory these studies. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.